Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Dear Asian Americans. Or in today's case, uh, we're calling the show Dear Pacific Islanders. We are so excited to host a conversation with Dr. Reynold Samoa, uh, who is an endocrinologist at the City of Hope Hospital here in Southern California, and also a member of the Presidential Commission on Asian Americans, Native Hawaiians, and Pacific Islanders. Uh, such an honor to speak to him about his upbringing, uh, the, the motivations that he had, the encouragement that he had along the way uh, to become a doctor, and what he has done to uh, uplift his community and, and all of our communities. Uh, this was one of my favorite conversations I've had in a while, and uh, just really, really grateful that Dr. Samoa came to talk to us. Uh, big shout-outs to our friends at TDW and our wonderful friends at the Health and Human Services Agency of the Federal Government for making this conversation possible. And a reminder to get yourselves and your children vaccinated and boosted you can learn more at vaccines.gov. And here now is my conversation with Dr. Samoa. So excited to welcome Dr. Reynold Samoa onto our show. Uh, he's an endocrinologist at City of Hope, which is based in Southern California like I am. Uh, he does a lot of wonderful things in the community at the intersection of efficacy, medicine, and the, the PI or the uh, Pacific Islander community. Uh, he is also a member of the uh, the newly formed uh, the Presidential Commission on Asian Americans, Native Hawaiians, and Pacific Islanders. Um, I don't know what that acronym is supposed to sound like anymore, but I am so excited to share this conversation. Uh, we'll learn about his past, his upbringing, how he chose medicine, and then how he's using his privilege and his voice to advocate for uh, some of the more marginalized communities within our greater Asian American, Pacific Islander, and Native Hawaiian community. And so, Dr. Samoa, welcome to Dears and Americans. Oh, thank you for having me. You are one of the busiest people, and we've <laughs> had uh, a very, uh, uh, I guess not a challenging time, but, you know, we, we scheduled this early. And so, uh, a shout out to Bryce and all of our friends at TDW for coordinating behind the scenes, because I understand how busy life is. But um, thank you for thinking of this show as important enough to make time for. So, you're an endocrinologist, um, very, very busy role. And you do a lot of community work. But before we talk about sort of your upbringing or what you're doing, um, how are you? I'm really? well. I'm well. Uh, yeah, it's been um, it's been a trying couple of years. But um, as we find the new normal, um, my new normal is not – it's tolerable right now. Right? <laughs> but like anybody else, uh, uh, this, the, the search for balance is real, um, and I'm still on it. Well, that's really wonderful to hear. Um, as a not only a frontline worker, but somebody who has um, taken the opportunity to create something that didn't exist, or at least in the way that you saw, um, in creating ways and a group of people to study the disproportionate impact of COVID, and then you know subsequently other things that impact um, in the Pacific Islanders. And you know, in our call leading up to this interview, uh, we got really both nerdy and jazzed up about data and and how. Sometimes data can be used to silence or anonymize or erase certain storylines. And then on the other side, how with enough disaggregation and with enough context, we can really use data to really shine the light on members of our community that need help the most. Um, but let's get to know you, sort of how you came to be. Tell us about your upbringing, your background, and um, your earlier years of your life. Uh, so I was born and raised in uh, Hawaii. Um, and so a lot of my upbringing was in the Pacific. Um, uh, my father was in the military, uh, the U S army. And so 
uh, that meant we got to spend a lot of time uh, with family members while he was overseas. So uh, I spent a fair amount of time in the, the U.S. territories, uh, especially American Samoa. And we moved uh, uh, away from Hawaii uh, as my dad was retiring uh, to Tacoma, Washington. Um, and in Washington State, uh, that's where I did a lot of my high school uh, undergraduate and graduate work. So I'm kind of based in that that area. And uh, I think around that time, um, I started becoming um, very, very interested in, in, in life sciences. Um, so yeah, science uh, was not something that was, it wasn't discouraged. It just wasn't encouraged in any of the schools that I went to. We were kind of recruited for athletics, and no one really sort of looked at uh, our academic development. And so I was lucky enough to sort of have a couple people in my corner. And so when I got to um, college, I had absolutely no idea what I wanted to go into. My dad suggested uh, business so I could do his taxes, and I (laughs) am not a business person. I, I struggled like crazy until uh, I took biology 101 as an intro course because we're, we're supposed to take all those you know requisite courses and I loved it I actually didn't study um, at all for that bio 101 course and did amazingly well and so <laughs> I actually started taking um, biology courses to augment my GPA and after a while I was like wait I'm kind of better at this um, so I uh, went into it not not knowing what you can do with um, a biology degree, and was lucky enough to to sort of run into people who um, uh, I I don't know why my sort of support network in in, in academia <clears throat> in educational environments has always been Asian women. <laughs> I don't mm. know what it is. Um, but uh, I was very lucky to make some really good friends in college who pointed me towards medicine. And then so I started uh, uh, looking into it a little more and found out how much I really like how you use science in a practical manner. Uh, the way you can apply um, uh, concepts was really intriguing to me. Um, I was a little nervous about applying to medical school initially. Um, because a lot of the places I applied to, you know, I was the first Samoan to apply there. And I was actually the first Samoan to attend the University of Washington. So it was really, it was an eye-opener for me. It was a bigger eye-opener for for the the school. Um, when, I, when I came in, you know, like the nerd I am, I was just so interested in learning as much as I could. And what I started to understand is the concept of subcontext. You know, a lot of the the cases that were used where obesity was a risk factor, you know, such as the stational diabetes, uh, diabetes, um, you know, slip capitis femoris, which is a condition of uh, pediatric patients who are heavier, um, that has to do with their hips. All of these, the case was always a Samoan patient, right? And before I showed up, um, you know, I guess Samoans were sort of like 
something that you thought about but didn't really see um you know and so when i came and then they started presenting these cases i could i could feel sort of all the eyes <laughs> draw onto me as soon as like um because it never it never happened before and that's when i started to realize where are where some of the roots of disparity are um you know like there's a reason why these cases are showing up and the predominance are pacific islanders you know and my being like the the first medical student in the school was just one another symptom of of, of those underlying factors um one particular instance was uh every medical student is supposed to do a research project so they send you to all these different potential research mentors to sort of get an idea of what they're working on see if this this is what interests you and i went to the geneticist um and the first thing the geneticist said when he saw me was and saw my name was like oh you're samoan we should do genetic studies on obesity because Samoans are fat, right? Um, and no, that was that was that was before he introduced himself, right? Like that was that was the first thing he said as soon as I walked into the office. And part of me knows it's a clumsy way of trying to connect to me, and um, you know, not really understanding sort of how to engage with somebody that's of a different persuasion than you but it it was also a jarring example of, to me that i'm walking into a space where a lot of my brethren have never walked into a lot of my sisters are going to walk into the same kind of situation that i walked into and so i can stay quiet which is what i did because i was a medical student i didn't know how to you know i had no idea what how to to navigate the situation, um, or I can try to figure out how I can improve things for them going forward. And so I think that, on top of a lot of other uh, uh, experiences, have kind of pushed me into the equity space. And so um, I became an endocrinologist uh, because around the time that uh, I was about to graduate from the University of Washington. Um, there were studies uh, coming out of uh, the University of Washington from Japan, Japanese immigrants and diabetes. And um, it was the first time I started seeing uh, more focused views on, on diabetes and how it, the effect of migration and moving to the U.S. can mitigate that risk. Um, uh, and so that's what started getting me interested in, in, uh, oh, and some of the, the reports were starting to emerge, uh, on the high diabetes prevalence, uh, in Pacific communities. Uh, and so that on top of like an innate interest in endocrinology, um, I became an endocrinologist, which is a diabetes and hormone specialist. Man, there's so much there I want to unpack. <laughs> Sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm. Well, I'm curious on your own sort of self identity, right? Um, Samoan, growing up in Hawaii. I, I don't want to assume, but um, and your father was in the U.S. Army. How did you see yourself as a part of the 
Pacific Islander fabric and community, the broader American fabric and community, especially given what your father did, and then moving to Seattle, which is mainland, but still a larger than average representation of uh, you know, Pacific Islanders. I don't think most people know, but so much so that the states of Hawaii, Oregon, and Washington have in-state tuition reciprocity agreements so that any of the students from any of the three states can go, which uh, for your uh, for the college football junkies out there is a heavy reason why most of the linemen you see on the University of Washington football team are Hawaiian Pacific Islander because of that, right? And so, and we've already talked about sort of the assumptions or the stereotypes of Samoans being larger, bigger, even fatter, as you said, even for babies, and that stereotype just being like, oh, why aren't you playing football, right? Like, right. Um, how, how did that inform sort of how you saw yourself as, you know, an American, as a Samoan growing up? Uh, you know, so that's an interesting question because it, it brings about like, you know, the intersectionality uh, of people, you know, in, in Hawaii, um, the, the Pacific Islander has a different sort of context, you know, um, in, in California, um, there's more unity around Pacific Islander, I think, because the, we're, we're such a smaller percentage of the population, but in Hawaii, because you sort of have larger numbers, there's a different dynamic, um, and, one has to be very respectful of those different uh, categories. You know, with um, Native Hawaiians, um, uh, I, I, I was very aware, you know, in Hawaii that I was not Native Hawaiian. Um, and a lot of the opportunities and a lot of the um, oppression faced by Native Hawaiians were, were I didn't experience, you know, even though we're both Pacific Islanders. And so, um, but it also meant that there were also things that were happening in Pacific Islander communities that were often being ignored, you know, um, mostly because we didn't know how to articulate it when I was at that age. And uh, we didn't really have any type of political capital to make any changes. And so it wasn't until I moved away from Hawaii that I start to gain a stronger sense of my Pacific Islander identity. Uh, and so that laid in upon the fact that uh, everywhere I, I grew up in when I was younger was a military installment. You know, um, those bases are filled with Pacific Islander communities. And it's like you said, we have a, a high representation of um, Pacific Islanders in the military. So in a way that that type of situation fostered kind of like a buffer, you know, mm. everywhere we went, our community went with us um, because, you know, they were in the military. And so it's, we, we set up these, the, these naturally occurring hubs, if you will, um, started to provide um, uh, safety for Pacific Islanders uh, on the continent. But, you know, the safety bubble kind of cuts both ways, um, you know, because when you leave the, sa the, the sanctity of your, your little bubble um, and you venture out into sort of areas where we, we don't usually go, that's when you start to experience the microaggressions. Uh, that's when you start to understand how stereotypes can actually hurt you. Um, yeah, and so uh, I don't know if you knew this statistic, but uh, uh, there are more uh, Samoan 
NFL athletes than there are physicians. Yeah. Wow. We may be we may be one of the few communities that can say that. You know, there are more. I, I believe it's true for Tongans too, but there are more uh, NFL pro athletes than there are physicians. And you know, it it kind of tells you the odds tell you where our opportunities lie. You know, our dis our um, obstacles in education. Uh, our, our opportunities after uh, secondary education, those show you where, you know, where, where a lot of our disparities lie, you know, and um, I think it's, it's, sometimes it's glorified, you know, um, it's, I know in the media, there was, there was a couple national stories that, that were run uh, regarding sort of the the higher probability for any Pacific Islander to eventually go into the NFL compared to any other community, um, and yeah, I mean that there's I, I'm not not proud of that, but I also know that 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 stems from a situation of oppression. You know that that stems from being shut out from a lot of opportunity. And a lot of institutions um, uh, to improve our quality of life. I mean, it's unfortunate, I think. And when we talk about these instances, it's usually in a weird, twisted way glorified, right? Like, wow, look at the opportunities that they get. They're born with physical advantages that allow them to do that. And I, I think for me, it's been such a learning journey. Um, we talk about data aggregation a lot. and how we bundle all of us together, right? And I, I think where I get curious about is, and what I've been humbled by uh, in doing research and, and reading more about how diverse and complex and uh, unique each of these communities are is often, and so I, you know, in 1992, when the first federal mandate came to celebrate Asian Pacific Heritage Week, because a week they said was sufficient, later became a month, and then now it's, you know, a federally month forever. Um, they gave everybody like West of California one month. They said all 4 billion of you, including continent of Asia and the islands in between, get one month. And I think it was either willfully lazy or intentionally uh, erasing of the beautiful complex of cultures because broadly speaking, the ways that America was introduced to different communities was very different, right? And so we can broadly say that many Asian Americans came to America, and for many of our Pacific Islander communities, it was the opposite where America came to them. And so the identity piece of how we see ourselves within the fabric of America is very, very different. And even still for uh, like Samoa, uh, Samoa, Guam, Tonga, and the territories, Marshall Islands, not fully American, yet fully independent, and it's this complex identity. And yet, when a select group of very ta physically talented athletes are put on the pedestal, it's almost a form of gaslighting to say, isn't that good enough for you guys? Or, you know, without America, this opportunity would not have existed. What would, you know, and, and so I, I think it's really interesting to talk about the identities and the communities that we don't talk about in depth because of, frankly, 
um, a lot of it is the larger populations of Asian Americans who dominate the narrative on what it means to be Asian American. I do obviously a lot of work within our community. In May is an interesting time because while I want to speak on Asian American issues, many organizations, companies, schools, even our government says, hey, this month is not just for you, but it's for the Pacific Islanders. And now we added with the Biden administration, Native Hawaiians into this month. And what what is your take on how we can meaningfully share time, space, resources, or is it impossible? Or I guess my I'll share with you sort of my take. I think we should debundle everything and celebrate different groups because there's so different narratives. And I think it's almost unfair and impossible to say these three very disparate groups should be celebrated with one event. And of course, because of the density issue of population size and representative voices, the smaller island populations don't all get invites, for example, to sit on the commission or to the White House event or even a press thing. And I, it's something that I have learned to get a little bit upset and passionate about that we don't treat uh, particularly the Pacific Islands that America used or you know involved them in. Let's be frank, in military defense reason, it's a nice buffer between Asia. Um, if you don't agree with me, then please study your history. <laughs> like, and, and, to, and to ask them to say like, hey, you know, like you, you need to share this one month. You should be grateful that we're going to give you this one month with the rest of the Asians. And then, but when it comes down to actual representation, do we actually do a good job community inside and outside of representing the PI and now the NH voices? Um, my, my answer is we can do a hell of a lot better job. And I think one step is disaggregating that too. But I'm very curious to get your take on things. Oh, uh, uh, if I could co-sign something right now, I'd co-sign everything you said. <laughs> um, you know, I think that's 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 been the struggle with COVID is erasure means death, right? Um, and we, we as Pacific Islanders, you know, um, when, it, when it first broke, um, in March of 2020, I actually contracted COVID. And in April, the first reports of disaggregated data started to emerge. And the Sacramento Bee actually reported that Pacific Islanders had the highest rates of contraction in California at the time. And just recovering from it, I was like, I, I can vouch for that. Um, and so when we took that data and tried to ask like our, our you know, because there's many of us who've been doing chronic disease work in Pacific communities for decades. And so the network was already involved for us to start communicating nationally. Um, and we'd ask, you know, hey, what does it look like in your state? And they're like, our data is not disaggregated. And I was like, that's not acceptable. And so, you know, with with the wisdom and, and the gusto of, of our community-based organizations, and long-time uh, Pacific Islander leaders, uh, everyone reached out to their public health departments and said, hey, can you please present disaggregated data? And we found out that it wasn't just California. You know, it was Washington. It was Oregon. It, you know, later became Hawaii, Arkansas, you know, Nevada. Um, you know, and, it, and the mortality rates followed. You know, they started to have the highest mortality rates. And so... You know, we kept get, kind of getting sort of bundled up um, with Asians. 
and hiding our and the data was hiding, right? And so a lot of the, the pushback in the beginning was like, well, you know, it's not really affecting your community while we're dying, right? Um, and so uh, what what you're talking about is a civil rights issue, you know, data disaggregation is is the first step to civil rights for a lot of these marginalized groups within our larger Asian American and HPI community. And, you know, that trying to assess our proximity to equity, that assessment has to be accurate, right? Because if it's invisible, no one's going to do anything about it. Uh, and for, for, I don't know how long, that proximity to equity has been invisible, you know, or at least that assessment has been. And so what, what you're talking about in um, uh, being co-conspirators, if you will, I think that's, that's really, that's, that's the only way forward if we want true justice and equity for all our communities. Um, one of the problems we have is, you know, these, these mandates and this forced sort of aggregation of Asian communities has been done, you know, because we were told that it's too burdensome uh, to try to get disaggregated data on all those communities that are represented under the, the larger group. And, and my question is, with all the benefit, with all the innovation that has come from all the Asian and HPI subgroups in the fields of medicine, in business, in science, you know, in athletics, why are we regarded as a burden to this country's progress, right? When we've done so much to progress this country's like, quality of life. And so, you know, I don't think it's, a, it's an extra ask, you know. What we're asking is that you uphold sort of the tenets uh, that America says it's important to them, justice and equality. And so, you know, I agree with you. Uh, you know, if we, I, I think we should have like separate months. I would pick April. That's because that's my birthday month. But <laughs> <laughs> I don't have to like think twice about it. Uh, you know, and, and I think that's really important because, uh, like you said, when we're on these spaces where we we are forced together to work on, it's one thing when it's pushed, you know, through the government for us to do so. It's another thing when it's the mindset of ourselves, right, of our own advocates. And so it's really, really important when we come together and you really, really are invested in improving our quality of life, that you empower those that are voiceless. You know, For instance, like you said, um, a lot of times with these national federal commissions and, and um, initiatives, there would be one Pacific Islander. Right, um, to represent the the plethora of Pacific Island communities that that are in existence, and you know that's just not equity, right? Um, and so I'm I'm very clear in my in my decisions when people ask me to speak on um, an HPI Heritage Month that I only speak at activities where NHPI are solidly in in thought you know that it's in their leadership it's in their you know their 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 body of work um 
because like you said, I, I don't think we're going to progress much with quotas. And if we're really, truly going to work together, we really need to start, you know, trusting that we can empower each other to do this work. We know where it gets, I think, super challenging and frustrating is, yes, we want disaggregated data, but disaggregated activism doesn't work. And so we live in this sort of impossible catch-22 of us having to come together to have a seat at the table to begin with. Like, so in talking about your work on this commission, it's a commission that's for everybody, right? And so when we bring the room together and then we can say like, okay, we're like six, seven, eight percent of the population, then there's enough of a mass of a voice for the president or any sort of entity to say, okay, it's worth paying attention to. But the unfortunate and very sad reality is the opposite happens where, let's say, you know, if there was a Samoan-only health advocacy lobby, it would be such a rounding error, right? And not to minimize the individuality, but when the denominator is 300 plus million Americans, they're going to say, yeah, but, you know, we it's hard, right? And so how we balance that, I think, is what our task is. And, and I'm going to call out myself and other people of my uh, sub-community of particularly the privileged East Asian men who often represent Asian American whatevers to say, guys, sometimes we need to step aside and sometimes we don't need to be the face of things and thinking about, do we really represent everybody? And because we are, relatively speaking, far more privileged and far more, um, sometimes have more access, right? And so, and, and I think that is, the challenge, uh, what I'm encouraged by, and it's not definitive, but I see more diversity in Asian American things today than even we did two years ago pre-pandemic. I see Asian American efforts with just Korean, Chinese, and Japanese dudes getting called out, not by outsiders, but by our own people to say, hey, how do we make sure that other people have a voice, right? Because, and it's so, this is why, like, you know, I really think that we should separate some of these things to say, like, hey, you know, who gets silenced, right? Because this is not a sufficient, so we have to live between sufficient and exhaustive, right? Will we get to exhaustive representation? No. But then how do we define sufficient representation? And if we rely on percentages and proportions, we're never going to get there. And, and you know, not just health, but, you know, academic access gets erased and silenced. Economic gets silenced. You know, if you look at, if you bundle all the agents together and even Pacific Islanders, Native Hawaiians, we make more money, we're more advanced in, uh, we're, we're far more advanced academically and we're doing okay. And then we perpetuate the modern minority myth all in a bundle and saying, you, all Asians and everybody else don't have a problem. Let's go help the people that actually need it. And I think what's really fascinating to me about this conversation on data desegregation is even if we look at other communities of color or even, you know, white people. If we break that down, we will actually be able to help the people who need the help and then maybe pull back from some of the communities who don't need as much resources, right? Because I think, and, and I've spoken to, you know, friends who do similar work and it's like, hey, if you are of the community that says you don't need help, like we, us, right? We're number two, but like, let's say white folks, there are white communities in this country that need help and they don't get help either because they get, you know, and, and that's probably the reason why they're upset for, you know, from a political perspective, but if we, you know, then the biggest question, like, are we 
too big and, and what is the right size of that? Um, and, and so in, in thinking about sort of the, the representation and making sure that you are using your representation properly, um, you had mentioned earlier just the dearth of Samoan doctors in America. Um, and Pacific Islander doctors. Pacific Islander doctors, broadly speaking, even worse, right? And so, yeah. and, and so this unfortunate burden that other doctors don't have, right? Certainly white doctors don't have, and even Korean and Chinese doctors don't have, is to be a great doctor overall, jump through all the hoops that it takes to become a doctor in this country. And then, because there's so few, what are you doing for the community? Right. Right. And 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 that's, I think, an unfair burden, um, but one that you have accepted and even have thrived that. And so tell us about what you did in the beginning parts of the pandemic um, that maybe not a direct correlation, but that caught the eye of even Congress, where, in which you spoke, um, representing your study and sort of the importance of data disaggregation and more importance on the first stages of the COVID uh, pandemic and its disproportionate impact on Pacific Islanders. Uh, yeah. So, you know, when, when it, I think I mentioned this earlier that when it, when it first broke and um, we were seeing the numbers initially, um, my first instinct was to go find a group that's working towards advocacy for Pacific Islanders um, to help. And when we got to sort of the federal level, we, I just didn't see, I didn't see a voice. Um, so in true Pacific fashion, you know, you call everybody you know, um, and you get them in a room. This, you know, this one was virtual, and you you come up with ideas and say, "Hey, how do we move forward?" Um, it is a very Pacific uh, leadership style to gather consensus before making big decisions. And one of the things we uh, needed to do was put forth a strategy. With the, you know, and and mind you, the the group that we put together, which was the Pacific Islander COVID nineteen response team. Um, it was made up of physicians. It was made up of uh, mental, I mean, uh, public health experts, um, community members, uh, what have you. We didn't care what you did. As long as you were interested in helping, uh, you joined. And we were broken up regionally by state. Uh, and then there was a national group. And so together, we put forth the strategy that dealt at the time with testing um, with communication, you know, communicating um, our recommendations because that was a huge problem during the pandemic. Also trying to identify community resources in regards to staying safe. What do you do? You know, how do you isolate in a room that's multi-generational, that has a, a, a more, you know, has a lot of multifamily. Uh, and so all of those things required that we needed to be coordinated in our approach um, so that um, each group didn't have to develop resources on their own. They were able to sort of take a template and, and go to their local health departments or uh, whatever funding agencies and, and ask for resources. So um, when we got to the issue of data disaggregation, one of the things I realized was, you know, hey, we we need numbers. You know, we need like regular numbers. We can't just keep asking these health departments, you know, to keep putting reports out um, and they do it when they feel like it. So I was lucky enough to meet up with um, Nenez Ponce uh, from UCLA, who helped us put together the NHPI data lab. You know, it's a it's another Pacific thing to do to ask for a favor and then ask three more. 
right? And so on top of looking at the data, one of the things I asked her was, can she please help train um, some of our Pacific undergrad students to help do this work? And she was she was so amazing that she was able to do so. And uh, uh, in doing so, the data lab has been able to report regularly the rates of, um, of contraction, uh, the rates of uh, mortality uh, in those states that do it, but they're also able to show which states that are not reporting disaggregated data. Unfortunately, you'll see that uh, NHPI's leads, I think it's like 16 out of the 20, 21 or 22 states have the highest, you know, NHPI have the highest contraction rate. And then I think 11 out of the 19 that report mortality data, um, uh, NHPI have the highest mortality rate. And so these things were, 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 I think, enough to catch the, um, the, the attention of, of the Ways and Means Committee of Congress. And so uh, uh, I presented to them uh, early on in the pandemic. Um, uh, but it, I think that, that was the, the first, that was, the, that was something that we started to look at each other and go, we can have a voice. Like, it, it's possible, you know. And we've been able to transition the um, Pacific on the COVID-19 response team because we were never meant to be permanent. The response team was, was response to COVID. Um, but we knew that uh, a lot of the reasons why COVID disproportionately impacted Pacific Islanders was because of longstanding inequities. Um, and that needed, that needed attention. Um, and we needed to sort of use that that federal voice that we had uh, to continue that momentum to work towards those inequities. So the response teams transitioned to the National Association of uh, Pacifico Organizations, or NAOPO. And with the help of um, Dr. Nia Itooto, who's out of the University of Utah, who is ridiculously amazing. Like, I don't, I, I cannot rave enough about Dr. Aita Oto's work. Um, she's been doing work for like four decades in, in the Pacific and has like been able to sort of replicate some of the work she's done there on the continent, um, but has been able to, to put together a very strong group of community-based organizations. Uh, I believe there's 10 and, you know, they're slated to go up to 20 across the nation um, uh, to do this, this advocacy work. And, you know, the group is... Um, decided to continue their work in, in a lot of this uh, advocacy field. And since data is, is data is key to health policy or any type of policy, they have a data and research council, which I'm the lead for. And they also have a, a policy council as well. So that's kind of um, the quick summary of, of what happened to us uh, up to today. And studying it is great start. Um, where we've been able to, I think, really make an impact is with the vaccines, right? And I think I have had the pleasure of also working with our friends at the Health and Human Services Department of the federal government and in really amplifying and encouraging our community members through the We Can Do This campaign. Because I think that's where we talk about, right? Like the government has this great goal of trying to get the country vaccinated. They are They need partners that understand language, culture, delivery, nuance, and so uh, community members have to get involved in helping get that message out there. 
not from a trust, not only from a trust perspective, but from a contextually resonant perspective. How has that been in the PI community broadly? So we know, as you shared, and from our own knowledge, that it disproportionately impacts on the contraction and the sickness side. Has there been equally optimistic news, or in in terms of getting folks to get vaccinated, and and how can we, as the broader as a very broad Asian American community, learn from how we can make sure that we can uh, even disaggregate or even more nuancedly uh, sub-message a broad messaging as simple as please get vaccinated into some of our communities that we can, you know, that it's not so simple as a blanket advertisement or, you know, a billboard ad. How do we make sure with nuance and with respect uh, that we can capture some of that important messaging to Pacific Islander communities? So that's a great question. Uh, so what, what's, what's highlighted from my experience has been where the, the base of this, the root of, of, of making any movement in the population is solely in the arms of the community. You know, it's not in the medical community's hands. It's not in the government's hands. It's completely, almost entirely in the, in the, in the hands of community. What do I mean by this? So um, when we were tasked by uh, Congress to uh, do a study, um, they, they tasked um, a bunch of organizations under one group to look at the uh, burden of COVID on uh, communities of color. And myself and Dr. Nia Toto, we did the Pacific Islander version, and we partnered with um, the, I always mess up their name, but they're the AAPA um, so they're a psychologist group, uh, Asian American a psychologist group, uh, led by um, Dr. Annie Saul from DePaul. And so we were we would not have been able to. We got about over 1,200 responses from across the nation, and we would not have been able to do that um, if the, the, the study design wasn't informed by the community, the feasibility was not informed by the community, and the legwork wasn't done by them. So they were involved in every step of uh, this survey. And what we were able to get was a fair amount of disaggregated data on NHPI subgroups. And what we found was, you know, aggregated, there was, you know, it looked like there was a lot of um, socioeconomic impact that would influence whether or not people trusted the vaccine. And, you know, uh, the more people made, the higher level of education they attained, the less likely they would be suspicious of the vaccine. You know, more likely they would get vaccinated. Um, and so when you look at it from that point, it looked like it was just purely socioeconomic, right? But when we broke down those numbers even more, and I think we're, we're, we're due to publish soon um, in the Journal of Health Equity, but what we were able to show in the subgroups was that not, that's not always the case. Sometimes um, in certain uh, Pacific Islander subgroups, the education and income didn't have that big of an effect on it, which means they're getting their information from somewhere else. You know, like they're they're not. It's not from the medical community that they're getting a lot of their information from. We did see that broadly when you looked across states. Uh, red states seem to be more suspicious of vaccines, um, where blue states were not as suspicious. Um, so, you know, there's a possibility that, that the information from these subgroups are being funneled through that same type of uh, filter 
that red states and blue states are being done. And so you can see how if you do a broad a broad look at it, you would miss the group that you know you need to find a different messaging for, right? Because the doctor message saying vaccines are good for you is not reaching that group. And you know, the even though with these obstacles, we found that the bridge is always community. They've been always been able to make up the um the 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 gap. Um HHS is working with a lot of these Pacific Islander community groups um, that have joined forces to do so, and they've been incredibly successful um, in getting more um, uh, people vaccinated. Um, you know, and so what we did find out was, um, well, in a later study that was done by the group from NOPO was that in this generation, in this, um, in the cohort of parents. Um, that were asked, you know, where do you get your your information from? Where do you, where's your, where would you trust to get your information from? Um, it wasn't from doctors, it was from other parents, right? So, you know, the communication strategy that I would use, um, because everyone that I think um, doctors can reach have been reached pretty much already. Um, now you have to go into groups. You know, you have to start asking. Um, parents who are community minded to start advocating for the vaccine to be more vocal on social media you know to to keep their community safe so though that's how um data disaggregation can help provide more equity um and help protect communities thank you for that i, I think it's a um as, as a parent myself of toddlers um we we constantly talk to other parents, you know, family, friends, and there is that trust factor, particularly within immigrant or within other marginalized communities that whatever the attribution is, uh, trust with systems or lack of language or, you know, other abilities to to connect. I, I think it's on us really to take care of one another and to make sure that we, one, get the information from the right trusted sources and then do our part in disseminating that, even though it's exhausting, even though we've all been at this for two plus years and as you mentioned earlier, you're you're doing fine given all things considered, but the given all things considered is the, the challenge, right? Um, yeah. As we wrap here, um, take us through sort of the non-medical, the, you know, just you as 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 a as a Samoan person. How cool has it been? Have you had even a moment to reflect on testifying in front of Congress, sitting on this commission? Um, the things that you've been able to do because you have decided to step up for your community and, and what that means for not just your parents, but other Samoans, other Pacific Islanders who will look up to you or see you as a community leader in all ways, shape or form. And to finally have not just representation, but proper representation that's actually doing something to help the community. What do you, what do you make of what you've done? You know, I really haven't had time to think about it. Not, not, I mean, I'm grounded because, so I had to give a talk a couple of weeks ago and I was flying out and uh, I was walking through the kitchen with my roller bag and, you know, I ran across my 15 year old and she was like, um, you know, Papa, you have to take me shopping. And I was like, I'm about to fly to go give a talk. And she's like, wait, so people, people fly you to give a talk. And I was like, yes. <laughs> And then she looked at me straight in the eye with no blink and said, ah, oh, Papa, I heard your talks. I don't know if I'd fly you, 
And then she walked <laughs> off like that was a pep talk or something. So there is a very strong network of people who keep me grounded. Um, so I don't really have time to sort of like sit back. And, and I do have to tell you like what what people who are close to me know is I don't really like public speaking. It's not that I'm afraid of it or anything. It's just, it's kind of like making your bed. You know, it's a chore for me. It's not something that like I wake up in the morning going, I want to speak in public. Right? Um, and so it is, it is part of my obligation to my community that if, if I really do say we're in community together, um, then I'll do my part. Right. Um, or else what's the use of being in community? And I think that's where my, my messaging from people who are, are, um, hesitant to get the vaccine that I disagree, you know, that we disagree with, you know, it's, uh, and, and some of these are my family members. You know, a lot of times I, I'll get the, um, the, the, all the, you've heard it before, all the rhetoric of like, there's bugs in it. You know, people are trying to track me. <laughs> it causes cancer, you know, all these, you know, all these, these talking points. And uh, they come from people that, you know, usually they're from like wingnut sites and, the thing I always have to sort of drill down with 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 uh, these people are, you know, what's what's going to happen if you do get sick, right? Like, I'll still be here. I'll still be here regardless. You know, like if if you get sick from the vaccine, it it doesn't mean. I mean, if you get sick from from COVID, that doesn't mean I win. It means I have to sit next to you and hold your hand. I have to whisper words of encouragement when you're on the ventilator, you know? Um, and so if, if you, if those people who are, who are giving you that information are going to do that for you, okay, go ahead and listen to them. But if they're not, ask yourself why you're listening to them and why their, their opinion is so important to you. Um, I'm also really, really good at answering questions nobody asked. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think that is uh, built into us storytellers yeah. who, um, no, I, I, you know, I really believe that our words can make a difference, right? And then that's why we have this platform and it's given me such unique opportunities to meet and share stories and, and time with people like you who, frankly, if not for opportunities like this, would our paths have crossed and, and could we have gone for an hour deep into not just personal storytelling, but what we can commit to do each other and collectively so that we can all be better and healthier and safer in this country. Um, and, you know, I, I think it's no surprise that our, our kids, um, you know, my kids are young enough where they still think I'm cool. Oh. And I am not looking forward to them being teenagers and and, and pooping on the work that I do. Um, it's the eye really, It is, but... <laughs> You know, we, we do these things so that, and we're not trying to be, you know, uh, morally high grounded people, but I want my grandkids to look at me and I want your mind to look at you and say, what did they do to make my life easier today, right? I think often we think about the, the challenges that our grandparents went through and very challenging times in their own unique ways so that we can have this privileged opportunity to do the work that we do. And if we're not going to then leverage that and parlay that for even more 
safety and health and privilege for the future generations, then 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 we've missed this opportunity. And I, I I know that sounds like this unfair burden that we are laden with, but you know we're only here because of the work that our other people have done. And and so, so real quick because is it the so oftentimes I'm asked that that question about oh how is it to be you know the first someone to go to UW or or the first someone endocrinologist and my my canned response is I don't really care about being the first I just don't want to be the last <sighs> right and so I think that's what you're talking about and and I I don't have enough time to reflect on like what I do which is probably a big blind spot on my part because um, there's so much stuff that I it just gets inundated that I don't want tomorrow to be like today. Yeah. You know? And so you know when I'm 90, um, I'll I'll probably look back and see how things went. <laughs> <laughs> so so leave us with, um, and I'll set you up for it in the form of our dearest Americans letter. But um, for uh, looking back, you're not 90 yet, neither am I. Um, but in in a in a future, you know, oriented, whether it's to your kids or a younger version of you, somewhere in the universe or other uh, Samoan kids and children who look up to you, um, share with us any sort of insights, motivation, or inspiration that you have. And I will make a quick change to the way that we do these letters. Um, and I will say, please help us complete the letter, dear Pacific Islanders. Oh, thank you. Um, what would I pass on? Um, uh, I'll do a quick story. So um, there's a, um, uh, in Samoan Protestant churches, there's a, there's a, there's kind of a summer competition that happens. And there's a myriad of competitions like, you know, scripture recital, um, a, a ton of things. But one of the things is sewing, right? When I was a seven, in my year, I won the sewing competition, right? And I was the only boy to win the sewing competition out of any of the years, right? And so, you know, being how boys are, I got a lot of ridicule for that, right? Um, and being a queer Samoan, um, that set a lot of anxiety in my little seven-year-old brain. So when they announced like the winners, you have to go up and accept your award. And uh, behind me were two boys laughing, right? Um, and I really didn't want to go up. But if anybody knows how someone churches work, the pastor's wife is usually standing there making sure everything happens the way it's supposed to happen. So she looks at me and she, she forcefully gestures for me to go up and get my award. So I go and I get it and I come back to my seat but before i come back to my seat she she touches my shoulder and she looks at me and she says don't let anybody make you ashamed of your nature right she says fish don't drown they swim they swim because it's their nature don't ever be ashamed of your nature right and i take that with me you know whether it be um uh, as a gay male, and whether it be uh, as, uh, the only Pacific Islander uh, in in a space, I take that with me wherever I go, you know. And I think your podcast and a lot of other initiatives 
are letting us use, you know, our true selves to make this country better. You know? And I think that data disaggregation, community engagement, all of those help towards finding community's truth. And the more true we are to ourselves, the more true we are to our community. So I appreciate uh, the invitation to be on the podcast. I absolutely adore it. I, I actually heard a couple of episodes and I'm, I'm a fan now. Um, I don't have time to do anything, but I might catch a couple more. <laughs> that mean that means so much. And, you know, um, I think being appreciative of learning about different cultures and communities that were either taught, if at all, in, in a very, um, you know, stereotypical way of what Pacific Islanders meant, mean, and what their presence is like, um, for, for us to share this moment together. And, um, man, you, you dropped some bombs there in the last 45 seconds that I need you, I, I want you to come back and we can explore more, more, uh, fun and uh, interesting conversations on, but it's, it's been so cool because I think what we need to do. And, and when I say we Asian Americans broadly, but more specifically, those of us who have the privilege of voice and academia and all these things is to make space for conversations like this on our platforms to say, we're not going to talk about them. We're going to actually invite them to talk about themselves and, and how we can be better adv- advocates and even allies within, right? Because may is simply not big enough for all of us. Oh, and yeah. so how do we bust out of this box that's been created for us, whether it is time or event or even uh, organizations to say that we need to be advocates for all of us. And so, Dr. Samoa, thank you so much for sharing your stories with us, your energy. Um, I know it's exhausting and I know it's tiring, but all the work that you do, both in your practice and in the advocacy world and now at the commission level, will make this world and this country a safer, a better place for not only mine and your kids, but so many of ours. So I really, really appreciate you. Thanks again to our lovely friends at TDW for making this a reality. And uh, thank you for listening and becoming a fan of our show. Talk to you soon. Thank you so much to Dr. Samo for sharing his story with us. Um, and, and I am so excited and an honor to be able to share his story uh, with all of you here on Dears and Americans. Again, head over to vaccines.gov to learn all about vaccines, uh, boosters, uh, age ranges. You know, we are still not uh, over COVID. And there are uh, other concerns with flu season around the corner. So, Uh, Protect yourself, protect the ones you love, and protect all of us uh, as a community. Again, big shout out to uh, the Health and Human Services, hhs.gov, is where you can learn more about all the wonderful work that the Health and Human Services arm of the uh, federal government is doing, and our friends over at TDW for making this possible. Uh, Vaccines.gov is where you can learn more about the work that you are doing, uh, what they are doing, rather. Um, And I'll put the links to where you can find more about Dr. Samoa's work, especially with the Presidential Commission on Asian Americans, Native Hawaiians, and Pacific Islanders. You can reach me at jerrywan.com. Email is just jerry at jerrywan.com. Or on Instagram, I am at jerryjwan. Wishing all of you health, safety, and happiness as we continue to share our stories, amplify our voices, and elevate each other. I am your host, Jerry Wan of the Asian Americans, and I'll see you next time.